You're listening to the Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Kaylee. And you're listening to episode 32, Bleeding My Religion or Thirst by Park Chan-wook. So I've never seen this one before, but I am a fan of Park Chan-wook's work. Uh, he directed The Handmaiden, which is my favourite movie of the year. So I was very excited by this. Uh, I'd also not seen Thirst, but I'd also not seen anything by Park Chan-wook. Although I was familiar w- with him. I knew that he had done uh, The Handmaiden, which was an ab- adaptation of uh, Fingersmith. That is the right one, isn't it? Yep. Yep. And um, he'd also done Old Boy, which... I had also heard about because they did a an American remake which I have not seen and have no intention on seeing. It's not that bad, honestly. Like it's it's not a train wreck, but the original is just so fascinating and visceral and strange and I mean you do see a man eat a live octopus and the guy actually did that, so Ew. Oh yeah, he had to do it like four or five times. Ew. Oh yeah, you can actually work. work before we, we're going so early into the tangents here, but you can watch. Um, there's like a making of video on YouTube, and it's them preparing for that scene. And the actor actually prays before each scene that he does it as like forgiveness from the squid, and then he eats it. And then he has to go do it to another one. Four of them he did it with. Talk about doing it for the art. Oh yeah. So. Um, He's that kind of director. Uh, if you get the chance to see The Handmaiden, and it is absolutely wonderful, but everything is just heightened to a, just the right degree, you know? Like, the violence is super violent. The sex is super sexy. It's it's that kind of, of just slightly out of our realm, just outside of realism angle that I find so fascinating about his work. So knowing that he's made a vampire I was in. And if I knew actually that this is technically an adaptation, would even be fascinating. Yeah, it's technically an adaptation, almost as much as technically I've been in England, but I was just passing through Heathrow Airport. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know this until after I'd seen the film. Technically, this is based on Therese Rakan, the, the Emil Zola book, which is about a dissatisfied housewife who is kind of strange and egocentric and selfish and decides to have an affair with one of her husband's pals. Um, but there are no vampires in that one. So basically, part John Wick has done what me and you have always wanted to, which is like, yeah, this story is fine, but it would be so much better if there were vampires. <laughs> he, he, he gets, gets us. us. Yeah. He gets us. So for those of you who haven't seen first, uh, you should watch it. It is great actually won a prize at the Cannes Film Festival the year it came out. So, so it, it's highbrow good as well. It's the story... <laughs> it is the story of, of, of Sang Hyun, who is a, a Roman Catholic priest in South Korea who decides to volunteer for a series, like a, a, te- a series of tests related to a deadly virus known as EV, the Emmanuel virus. Basically, it seems to strike a lot of missionaries in Africa, which is where he ends up going, and they all die. And he dies as well, but after a blood transfusion he receives while he's on his deathbed, he is mysteriously returned to full health and becomes this figure of inspiration and basically a walking miracle to his congregation, which leads him... They call him the bandaged saint because he goes around completely bandaged and there is you know, a crowd of people who like beg him to come and pray over their sick son or pray for their for their children or their husband or their wife or themselves because they are so sick and clearly the bandaged saint can do miracles if he came back from the from the brink. The only survivor out of five hundred. You know, it's something must be God's hand must be at work here. And he ends up that essentially becoming almost Christ-like figure himself in this community, which leads him to reunite with a former friend of his who is currently ill, and he ends up spending a lot of time with this friend, and particularly his family and his wife, 
a young woman called Teju, and he quickly finds himself very uh, you know, intrigued by this woman, and then starts to get some very unusual symptoms. Basically, he can't go out in the sunlight, he's desperately hungry for blood, and he suddenly has all of these really cool powers. He's super strong, he can jump distances, he suddenly really likes the idea of sex. Never done it before, never had the taste for it, and now he's like really good at it. If he doesn't get blood, a lot of the EV symptoms revert, so he gets all these sores everywhere. Um, he tried to commit suicide, landed on a car, got up and walked away after a very awkward silence. It keeps its distance there, which I think is great. It's just sort of a, oh, I guess I'm alive. I'll just, I'll just go for a walk. I, I don't know what else is going on here. Which, honestly, would be sort of your reaction. Oh, no, I'm a vampire. Oh, crap, I can't kill myself. What, what, what do? <laughs> so the, 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 most, the, the great meat of the story is uh, Sanghyun's sort of, torn between these temptations. He is a Roman Catholic priest for the most part, at least at the beginning, he's actually pretty unwavering in his faith. The doubts that he has are more about himself and less about his beliefs. That does start to change once he becomes a blood-sucking monster. Uh, but he does try as much hard as he can to remain quote-unquote good. He basically uses one of his comatose friends as a blood bank. <laughs> Just like drinking out of him with essentially using the IV drip as like a Draw, which is a really funny side gag but at the same time he is so drawn to Teju and she's very into him and they have really good sex I, well they seem to think so I was just sitting there going well this is awkward <laughs> I mean I, we'll get into this later um, because a big part of that relationship that he has with her is is based in this it's partly in what other people see in him. They do see him as the sort of miraculous healer who could solve all their problems, so maybe he's not that good at fucking, and her husband is just so bad that this guy is great in comparison. Or maybe being a vampire does turn him into the Casanova of South Korea. We don't know. Um, but that the dynamics that they have change so, in such fascinating ways throughout the story, and a large portion of that is based on the fact that they are really attracted to one another. And it's something that neither of them are really used to. She's married to a guy who she basically grew up with, who's kind of a wet blanket. He's essentially like a like, like she's kind of like his foster sister in a way. She grew up in this household, but is essentially like the indentured servant of her mother-in-law. So when she actually finds someone who's quite interested in her, um, and she's really willing to take advantage of that, like she basically falls on the guy um, and then they just start like chatting up in really dirty ways when they talk about mahjong which i like, thought was hilarious i could do this all night long <laughs> it's a really funny film actually as well yeah so teju's family rented a room from uh lady ra the mother-in-law and the family and then they just left the child there when she was about three. And so she's like, I took her and raised her like a daughter and a puppy. Also a great line. <laughs> Which sort of sums up. Yeah. So, you know, raised her. And then when the time came, look, just marry my son. It'll be fine. You've been raised in the same household since you were children. And the priest referred to him, referred to her as your sister. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And of course, the husband is just sick and coddled by his mother. He's clearly sicker than everyone believes, but mother doesn't want to see it. That's know? a really interesting relationship, actually. And the way that the film kind of flips the sympathies, you know, one minute you're really against her and the other you start to feel pity for her, you kind of understand her. I think the film does that really well with most of the characters in the piece, actually. Because her husband, who's called Kang Wu, is not a bad guy, he's just kind of a drip. Oh, he's a total... He, he is the Ralph he's Wiggum a mummy's of this boy. movie, basically. Or maybe the Butters from South Park, but without... Like, with less fucked up issues. He's not a... He's barely a man. But it's not cruel towards him. 
it's more like, look, this is what happens if you, you know, have a woman who does everything for him and submits to his every whim, no matter how childish, starting from his mother and then just transferring it to his wife. He basically married a new mother. And he seems completely oblivious to the fact that she hates this. Well, he's too busy being sick. And masturbating, possibly. There's actually quite a few masturbation jokes in it. This is a really funny movie. One of my favourite things about Park Chan-wook's movies, actually, are the ways that he just juggles so many tones and genres at once. Like, this movie is... It's a horror, but it's also a romance. But it's also a thriller, but it's also kind of, like, an old-school erotic thriller. But it's also really, really funny. But it's also an examination of, of faith. But it's all of these different things... But it never feels weighed down by them all. Like, he's got all those balls in the air. Yeah, all those balls actually make it work. I mean, you could take one sort of storyline and element and it would make a good movie, you know. Um, take uh, a woman and her lover kill her husband. A woman convinces her lover to kill her husband, saying that the husband is abusive. Then they're haunted by the ghost of the dead husband. Well, that's Lady believe. Except it's the gender swap. But yeah, there's elements of that in there. I wonder if he's seen that. He probably has. Because when they're haunted by him, it is super full on. Oh man, the bit where he just shows up everywhere, including between the two of them (laughs) as they're having sex. I was just like, wait, wait, is this actually happening? And I think that's the character's... Ignore him, you'll go away soon, I promise. (laughs) He's just lying on top of her and he's on top of him. Before we we skip ahead, we should say that um, to, to explain what happens that movie is essentially as their affair continues, uh, he does reveal to her that, she, that he is a vampire and she does freak out at first, but kind of comes around to it. And then basically when he asks her, will you run away with me? We'll be together. She says she can't leave her husband and kind of cajoles him a little bit into, you know, you should get rid of him, and she implies that he has been beating her. So they take him to a, a lake and decide that they're going to like throw him overboard. It doesn't entirely go to plan, but they do kill him and are quickly haunted by his corpse in a very, very creepy manner. It's basically that uh, you end up see- they end up seeing him everywhere, and he's dripping wet and in his fishing gear, but never seems mad at them for it. He still seems kind of as guileless as ever. Yeah, like he's he's wet and on a bed or um, with a heavy stone weighing him down or in between, and he just sort of got this "Hey guys, what's up?" expression on his face. Ah, what are you doing today? Oh, this looks fun. I mean, that was makes it fair, actually. Yeah, like the the they're sleeping in the bed after having sex, and he's just sort of sitting there, lying there, grinning between the two of them. This like honestly more horrifying because he's just there and it's, he's still their, their, their husband friend sort of character even though he's dripping wet and dead and being weighed down by a heavy stone and in their bed and that opens up a lot of questions because we don't know are they actually both seeing the same thing is this a manifestation related to his vampirism is it something more to do with his faith it's less entirely ambiguous Is there an actual ghost and um, our, our vampire hero was actually having sex with him or trying to have sex with Taiju? <laughs> yeah. Well, he still had pants on. It really is. Hey, guys! They, and, and as that goes on and they're much more haunted by the this, this apparition or the, the, the sheer paranoia of being found out, uh, Lady Ra, who is um, Kangaroo's mother enters a sort of catatonic state, basically because of the, the shock and grief of her sons. Uh, he disappeared. They haven't actually found his body by this point in time. But yeah. he's also been drinking um, a lot. Taiju basically, be- and the, the pair of them basically become her carer. And when she accidentally lets it slip that he never laid a, a hand on her, uh, they have a massive fight. She asks 
to go back to her husband, so he breaks her neck, but realizes actually he doesn't want to be alone forever, so he turns her into a vampire. And oh boy, is that a scene! Just the the whole turning and the the murder. It it's full of awkward comedy that makes it more horrifying. Just like the the picking up and walking off and the. That realizing that when you have magical healing powers, actually trying to slit your wrist to get someone to drink your blood is really hard. Yeah. Like the practicalities of it. Um, one of those things that you think about and actually, oh, it does go there. So that's really interesting. Uh, and then once that happens, the, com- the dynamics of them totally flip. Because Teju loves being a vampire and loves being just the, great, the most amoral monster in the country. She is happy to indiscriminately kill everyone. Wooby destroyer of worlds. She, yeah, she has absolutely no understanding of why she has to wait around for bags of blood. Why should she, you know, be nice or sort of merciful to anyone? So that leads to him dumping her by literally dropping her off a roof. Yeah, she she's like, we're the superior predator. This is what we're supposed to do. Which, you know, is, again, very common argument you see in a lot of vampires, so... She's not doing anything outlandish here. It's just she's gone from being the bottom of the, um... The food chain to the top. She's realised she's no longer going to be the one beaten down by the people above her. She can do the beating down. And obviously that change... As we see in so many films where that dynamic gets flipped, is Hedy and... Of course, she's hungry as well, which ties into it. So she finally has all this, this strength and this power and this confidence. And you can see it in the way she suddenly starts dressing better. She, she takes control of the house. She she takes control of everything, really, now that there's nothing and no one in her way. And she has all this extra stuff to support her. And of course, with nothing to stop her, off she goes. Yeah, the class dynamics of this are particularly fascinating. Because once she does become a vampire, it's not that she necessarily moves up in class, but she is now the head of a household. And that brings with it a respect. So the people who came to the Mahjong games that her husband and her mother-in-law ran would mock her or completely blank her. And now, you know, she's she's running it. And they are... You know, by her, they're you know into it. They really do respect her in that element because you know the chain of command has totally switched. She's now part of the table, not serving the table. Yes, exactly. Um, that doesn't last very long. As at this one Mahjong game, Lady Ra finds a way to communicate that these two are the killers, and that basically means they have to do a little bit of a clean-up situation, which is part The Shining, part Benny Hill. Like, if you put Yaki Slip over them, like, running in and out of the doors, it would totally make sense. Oh, oh, I know what I have to do. Please do it, please do it. <laughs> after this, after uh, It is wonderful. Um, but it's also, I mean, they they don't mind getting super violent in this, which is one of the things that I really like about Park Chan-wook's movies. Um, it's very stylistic, but it's not. It doesn't feel like too much. You know, he's good at picking stories that go with it. Because there is a scene in The Handmaiden involving a squid. Uh, He really likes octopus guys. um, That I will not talk about because you should watch the film. But it's that kind of... Sex or food? It's implied... It's implied sex. Like, it's in the tank kind of waiting and watching. But... No, you should watch the movie. It's wonderful. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I've gone off track entirely. But no, there's a wonderful visceral style to, to Park Chang-wook that I find so fascinating to watch. And I found it really interesting here. Just that kind of contrast between the sheer grotesque of vampirism and but also the Catch-22, which is if he doesn't do this grotesque thing, which is feed off of other people, he the, the pus pussy sores start to grow back. He starts to bleed out of everywhere. He starts to vomit out copious amounts of blood. You know. He's not going to die. The implication is that he won't die, but he'll just be stuck in this sort of horrific, painful state. 
And that almost brings us to the end of the film, but not only does the um, Sankyun, does he decide actually this ends one way, which is basically I have to die, but he has to destroy his reputation before he does it. So he goes into the the sort of camp that has been set up of like worshippers outside the the um the convent or the, the hospital. Basically, he now has this like sort of cult group that kind of follow him everywhere and bang on the windows of the hospital and beg for his help and beg for his salvation and stuff. And he they decide to make it look like he's tried to rape a woman to have them basically pitchfork and torch pitchfork and torch him away. And have his reputation be ruined so that he can no longer be their idol, so that he can sort of die the way that he feels he deserves to die, which is to die a monster. But he is obviously not going to die alone, so he takes Teju with him, and she spends so... There is this extended sequence of him just, no, you're not going to hide underneath the car. No, you can't hide in the boot. No, the sun is rising, you're definitely going to die too. And then she just sort of gives in. <sighs> Ah, well, we had a good run, and then they decide to sort of watch the sunrise and burn, which is this really fascinating scene to watch because it's it's very melancholy, but once again, it is very visceral. Like you see that skin blistering, you you can kind of feel the pain of it. It's not a quick death. And of course, Lady Rara is sitting in the back seat, completely paralyzed, watching this whole thing. So I'm like, yeah, uh, what's going to happen to Lady Ra? She, she can't even get out of the back seat. So she's just going to sit there and, I guess, um, die of dehydration, probably. So I doubt anyone knows they're out there. So the final shot of the film is um, they're wearing matching That's shoes, the which thing. is a callback to the scene that happened earlier in the film. But it's just essentially the charred ashes of them. That crumble as in in the sunlight, and that's how it ends. And it's a, you know, I, I really loved this movie. I did. This is it's a vampire movie, but it's a story about a couple. It's a story about religion. It's a story about everything. It's incredibly ambitious, but it seems so simple. Like if you pitch this the story to someone, it could so easily read like the kind of B-movie thing you'd see on the horror channel at, like, one in the morning. Yeah. A priest becomes a vampire and falls to temptation. Temptation for the blood, temptation for woman, temptation for everything he's, he's denied himself. That could be, you know, completely high, as we've seen, or it could be... And then he becomes a father vampire killer dude that kind of thing it could yeah it could be completely high like we've seen or it could be b-roll that sits next to lesbian vampire killers on the shelf like if, when you hear this plot there's absolutely no way in your mind you think oh yeah this film did really well at the Cannes film festival which is so cool yeah it's a, a vampire film did really well at Cannes so it just goes to show vampire films can be Freaking awesome, but also really, really critically loved. At least if they're Park Chan Wook. I mean, this guy is a miracle worker. Have you seen Stoker? Yes, I have seen Stoker. Oh, so. So you have seen a Park Chan Wook movie? Oh, I have too! I keep attaching Wentworth Miller to that rather than. I know he's the writer, not the director, but when I think of people behind Stoker, I think Wentworth Miller. But you can see this, the, 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 this, the, the parallels, right? You can see the. Now that I'm like, yep, there it is, the awkward masturbation scene. But you kind of get, get now, right? You, you get his film and you see, oh, that makes sense that it was made by this guy. Yep. Even though it's been ages since I saw Stoker. I mean, Stoker is yeah. almost a vampire <laughs> movie anyway. Yeah, look yeah. at the, the title. <laughs> it is a vampire movie without the vampires. Um, but this is him just going full, you know, balls to the wall vampire. Uh, and it's brilliant. And it's really interesting. I think we can break down different elements that we really like. We should talk about this in terms of the religious aspect. Because um, our, our, you know, protagonist is a, is a Roman Catholic priest in South Korea. And as far as I know, South Korea is not a majority Christian country. At least not majority Roman Catholic. 
and we as Westerners and and our you know wonderful imperialist ignorance don't tend to think of Asian countries as as Christian nations. So I was super interested in that. So um, quick look on uh, Wikipedia: religions of so religion in South Korea. Uh, most sorry, 56.9% are attached to no formal religion, uh, Sindo, Korean Confucianism, and unregistered groups. Protestantism is 19.7%. Roman, Roman Catholicism is 7.9%. And Korean Buddhism, 15.5%. So, Roman Roman Catholics are at the the lesser amount of those amounts. More than double of that amount are Protestant, to give you an idea. Basically, there are twice as many Protestants than there are Roman Catholics. So actually, in the amount of films that we've covered, and books and such that we've done in this, um, this dog and pony show of ours, given how much vampire lore in our minds is inextricably, inextricably linked to to faith, particularly the Christian faith. We've actually done very few episodes on vampire stories that are explicitly religious in their theming. Like, uh, Dracula 2000 might be the only other big one. Uh, from Dust True, to but it's not quite as... This, that, that story isn't as interested in that element. Yeah. Because that doesn't have as much text in it. Uh, yeah, some of them have religious backing in there. Um, Van Helsing, the Hugh Jackman movie, had the religious background and the possible hint that uh, Van Helsing was actually the Archangel Gabriel. That's just, oh man. What? We, we, we missed out on that expanded universe. Uh, there's the priest in... Uh, I know, I need that as the comic I mean, But the big so one, I think, cool, for us, know. I think the big one that we've done is the Dracula 2000 in that aspect, because it's an explicit part of the story in a way that you can't just sort of, like, wishy-washy dismiss as, oh, well, you know, that had to be there. No, they centred the story on that specifically, and that's what Park Chan-wook does here. This is a movie about faith. Yeah. And His Roman origin Catholic story is religion. Faith, I mean, but... Then again, we think of vampires and faith explicitly in, in Christian terms, but it's not an explicitly faith-based folklore. It's not an explicitly faith-based area of, you know, mythology. It's more like bad things are going out there, yeah, but throw a religion at, at it and see if that but works. But there are vampire myths Which around is a general the world response. <laughs> in countries and nations and continents that didn't have Christianity for a very, very long time. I mean, there must be Korean-based vampire myths or sort of mythology equivalent to vampires that has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. We know that China has the hopping vampire story. Um... I, th I think I'm not going to be, you know, 100% specific on this, but in my reading, a lot of people have written about how um, Japan's vampire fiction is heavily influenced by American vampire fiction that was imported because they don't really have an equivalent sort of story. So maybe that's the case, but they may have hopping vampires or something similar. That is something I will lead to research and, and the origins the origins of vampirism in first are really interesting because they're not based in korea they're based in africa the reason he becomes a vampire is because he gets a blood transfusion while he is on a mission in africa and it's nothing to do with he's not being bitten he's not being preyed upon none of the usual ways that we think of being turned into a vampire are here, it is a medical mistake. This is purely a biological accident. This has nothing to do with his faith. Basically, the only reason that this keeps happening to missionaries is because these are the only people stupid or selfless enough to keep volunteering for this shit. They do say that the actual uh, 
local population don't seem to be getting inf infected by it. So I guess they must be smart enough to not do something that the missionaries There's are doing. There's a metaphor there, isn't smart there? Smart enough to do something that the missionaries aren't doing. You know, maybe the yeah, the missionaries are brushing something off as local superstition or folklore that they need to correct. Oops, missionaries all die because they didn't take the advice of the locals. Basically, stop coming into our nation and telling us to do shit. I appreciated that, actually. I, I was, I really liked that element. I mean, it's just quoting, because he's really in and out of Africa by the first ten minutes. It's not a long scene. There's the African doctor, and then... All the, everyone else there is sort of the, the dying patients who are white or Asian. And a handful of nurses, but that's about it. And that's all like, okay, origin story over and done with. Tony, Scrap, Tony Stark's out of the cave building his robot with a box of scraps. Let's get on to the meat of story. <laughs> I gotta bring in the old memes. That's what I'm here for. Old memes. That's what's always in your business card. I need to make new business cards, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Just old memes. Just have old memes you own it, nothing else. Forget the dank memes. I've got the old memes. Vintage memes in a second-hand store. But it's interesting for our, you know, our priest is his faith. He doesn't really think about the vampirism in terms of his faith. There are certainly moral quandaries, but it's not something that he, you know, tries to pray away. And when he does try to seek religious guidance from his kind of his mentor, his mentor is more like, actually, I'd be into this. Can I have a taste? Because I'd really like to see again. Can I? Can I do that? And he's just like, no. Fuck's sake, man, I've got other things to deal with. I mean, there's a much more big, there's a bigger focus, I feel, in this film's philosophical dilemma than we've seen in a lot of other stuff that we've done. Like, that dilemma is really at the heart of this story, but it's not the only thing going on here. There is a romance in this. There is a lot of class dynamics. There is a lot to do with the faith. There is a lot to do with notions of sort of hero worship and deification there's a lot of silly comedy in this like his friend who's in the coma who tells that story about one time he gave some cake to some sort of children and passers-by and that's maybe the thing that's going to get him into heaven it's like congratulations you gave them some old cake you were hoarding good for you which does lead to an amazing callback later because when he's caught feeding on his friend, uh, the priest does say, you know what, if he was awake, he'd totally let me do this. He loved to share his food. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, wee. Like, I get it. Um, uh, but it's wonderful moments like that. It's The, the humour is so fascinating, because there are moments that are like that, like you could put Benny Hill music over a couple of them, but then there's stuff that's just really subtle. But then there's also like, Ooh, kind of double entendre moments, like when they're like doing innuendo over the mahjong game. Yeah, it's it's really well done like that. But you could imagine trying to do this in English and it just not working. Don't remake this film. Speaking of English, uh, it was interesting just the occasional dropping in of other languages. Yeah, fit the location and the characters. I was really interested in that. Like, uh, one of the friends that comes around to the Mahjong party, she's Filipina and she doesn't speak um, very much Korean. She does speak English. And it's actually sort of plot relevant in that she speaks to... Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> she speaks speaks to uh, Sang-hyun uh, in English, asking him to pray over uh, Teju, and he'll pray in Korean and say some extra things that are very explicitly about their relationship, but she doesn't understand. But it also shows sort of the, the attention and the ne neglect and how she's very easily made the outcast of the group, 
Uh, she's foreign, she speaks English, and her husband jokes about how he's so good at com- reading what people's eye- what's in people's eyes that he doesn't need to actually talk to his wife, and that's why her Korean is so poor. Yeah, the gender dynamics in the film a... as well. But particularly the gender, but gender along terms of age. Because really the one woman who does get respect is Lady Ra, and that's partly because she is a matriarch. You know, people turn to her for, like, authority, but they would never dream of doing that to her daughter-in-law or really any other woman until they themselves are in a position of authority that they've either had to earn or wait for someone to die. Yeah, there's, when there's, she has power because, well, there are women underneath her as well. As long as she's at the top of that chain, she's automatically got more power than any of the other ones. But she does have um, position as the matriarch as well. Essentially, marriage is your root in this movie if you're a woman. Uh, but that's another thing that's really interesting. And in, like, if you watch The Handmaiden, a film that's all about women being fucked over by the patriarchy and how women respond to that by like by harnessing the tools of the patriarchy, which in the case of The Handmaiden is part is partly por- pornography. You should watch that movie, like, on your own. <laughs> Make sure no one else is in the house. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched this, I watched this on my own, and I watched Astoka on my own, and I watched True Blood on my own. <laughs> A lot of the stuff I watch on my own, partially because no one else would be interested in watching them with me, and also because of this very, very reason that we're discussing right now. I mean, now. that's common sense. Because, oh, good. Yep. I think that we should talk about the vampirism itself. Because, as I mentioned before, the vampirism here is strictly biological, but it acts in really interesting ways. It's it's a permanent condition, but it offers temporary salvation from this all-consuming illness. Essentially, being a vampire and feeding is sort of like regularly taking painkillers. It only works for a while. You need to feed the cure. The, the vampirism needs the strength to continue maintaining uh, the, the body or holding the disease at bay. And it's interesting how how many elements of vampirism that we are so familiar with are here, but how many are not? So, aversion to sunlight is here. Sort of increased strength and and agility is here. Uh, No fangs. He does bite, but there doesn't seem to be actual fangs. Uh, He's a Catholic priest, but obviously there's no repulsion by religious art There's no moment where he's looking at a crucifix and burning him or anything, which I was expecting. And I thought that that was going to be part of the philosophical quandary. It's not, and I actually think it's more interesting for that. It makes it harder for him. He can't... You know, if, if he was like, well, clearly I am a monster, my religion hates me and keeps repelling me clearly i need to work harder to be good you know there's your you're definitely being defined as a monster as a villain as something that you should be against and therefore you need to struggle against yourself in order to find redemption but there's no clear line here god doesn't seem to have any opinion or there's no god at all and that's something that he is obviously quietly dealing with as a possibility yeah, because uh, Teju just believes death is the end, which is possibly part of the reason why she's um, so determined to not die at the end, besides the generic desire to, I don't want to die yet, I'm just starting to live. Uh, whereas he's like, well, clearly the best place for us is in hell, let's go get right on that. But here, either God doesn't seem to mind what he is, you know, maybe it's like God's giving you this thing, you need to go ahead and do something with it, and then it turns out maybe maybe the devil has snuck in instead reflecting an earlier conversation with uh, one of the nurses, which I, as an aside I thought was interesting because he's a Catholic priest, 
he's telling her, you know, suicide is a sin and everything. And then he says, you know, go get God's help through the science he's given us. Go, go see a doctor, get some antidepressants and stop thinking about, thinking about killing yourself. Which is kind of interesting because I think a lot of people would picture a Catholic priest saying, okay, go away and pray, don't kill yourself, rather than God has given us the ability to help ourselves go see a doctor. And also, she responds to that in a really interesting way, which is she does quite rightly so read it as, as kind of patronizing. Yeah, he says, stop thinking about the bastard who dumped you. And, like, stop thinking about killing yourself. I mean, as far as I, I... I've never been suicidally depressed, but I don't think it works like that. No, 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 it doesn't. No. I'm like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, it's like, stop thinking about your period cramps. It'll totally go away. No, no, they don't. I mean, he was kind of right up to a point. It's like, look, there's no shame in going to see a doctor. I think, you know talking to someone about this and if you know if there is medication take it you know, god has given us this ability to do it don't squander god's gift because they're in a religious sort of hospital and environment and obviously she's come to confessional but then he said stop thinking about the bastard who dumped you and stop thinking about killing yourself it's like y you were kind of doing okay there and then she and then she rightly points out you're you're a virgin who can't drive <laughs> Which is awesome. It's just like, he's like, what do you know about relationships? You sit here in this little box and tell people to not think about their ex-boyfriends. I mean, obviously, stop thinking about the bastard who dumped her. This would be good advice, but this is not the time or the place. And also, he never really does take that advice when it does come to this sort of illicit relationship that he forms. Uh, actually, he ends up doing to her what everyone else is doing to him, is, she, is that he kind of deifies her. You know, he does believe her to be this this sort of wilting victim, and in many ways she is a victim. She is clearly someone who has suffered from a lot of emotional abuse throughout the years. She's someone who's never really been looked after as a, in a by, by parents, exclusively parents, you know, or someone in a parental role. And that has impacted her, but it also blinds him from stuff like when when she first tries it on with him, and he starts whipping his dick. <laughs> uh, there's a typical priest moment where he's like, he's getting a hard on. So what does he do? He just starts smacking it away with like a bead. Yeah, there's just he just wants to sweep in like a nice guy. Yeah, he he wants and to get his save vagina her. reward, and he can't save her. He's all, he's all about making sacrifices and doing the right thing and saving people. So of course, when he sees the wilting flower being abused by the family, of course he has to help her. And if he gets vagina reward, yay! I think that leads us on, that was a lovely segue there, and I think that we should talk about the sex in this movie. Vagina reward. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Okay, yeah, the sex is kind of weird. Awkward as fuck. Ing. Okay, so I was quite fascinated by sex. I mean, first of all, she's revved up to go, and it's, sort it's implied that his vampirism has given him something of an allure. She's not aware that he's a vampire, but she is aware that there's just something going on. You know, he's not an unattractive man, but he's not sort of the traditionally handsome. Like, have you seen some of the incredibly handsome men that are in Korean cinema? Like, this guy is, is not much. Yes. But there's just... Oh, and I think it's also that he is a figure of authority. He's a figure of authority above everyone else in the household she lives in because he's a man of the cloth. Um... And he's also clearly up for it. She has to kind of coax him into it, but when it does happen, the implication is that she's never had an orgasm with her husband. But it's also a possibility that she is, is lying about that in order to make him feel good, because this guy hasn't even kissed a woman, let alone had sex with one. Every time the guy gets hard, he whips his dick to get it down. And that's not like a metaphor for masturbation. He literally whips it. Yeah, that's just a thing. Honestly, I'd be surprised if Teju's husband 
actually managed to find her vagina if he was just doing uh, Tommy Wiseau in the room and trying to go for the <laughs> I just saw the disaster artist a couple weeks ago. So yeah. You just saw the disaster artist? A couple weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, that was good. I enjoyed it. I have problems with it, but that's a different podcast altogether. But yeah, it's, I mean, one of the points that she, that she makes is basically she watches her husband masturbate a lot. So there's also the implication that he's probably never successfully done it with her either. But he does certainly seem to get better at sex as they go on, because they do it a lot. I mean, they go at it like woodchucks. There was a bunny bunnicular joke you could have probably made. You know what, I'll leave that to you. But I was, I mean, I actually thought the sex was really interesting because Park Chan-wook does sex a lot in his male movies. Uh, the Handmaid has some of the, oh my god, those sex scenes are amazing. The scissoring, oh my god, the scissoring. Uh, but there's nothing that in here. Uh, the implication that you could make is that this guy is totally enraptured by sex and that's what kind of leads him down this path. I think it's more than that. He is much more into the entire fantasy that it creates. You know, yes, she uh, rocks his socks off, but she's also a wilting flower that he can still save. And it's part of that kind of ultimate masculine fantasy that, you know, he's such a big man that even though he's never done it before, that he can make her feel so good. Yeah, it's very, very... The nice guy dreams of rescuing the girl, she'll reward him with sex and he'll be so good, she'll, he'll ruin her for any other men, including her own husband. Though again, given her husband, I'm surprised he manages to find his way to her vagina than anything else. He'd probably just lose consciousness given how sick he tends, or asleep he tends to be. Or just call out, it's like, where's my hot water bottle? In the middle of it. He does sexually embarrass her during one of the Mahjong games, but that's again more about asserting his own status at the table. It's all about those those sort of societal dynamics as well as the sexual ones. You know, women have their place. They they fetch the drinks for the Mahjong table, they lie back in bed and think of soul. They don't do much else. Unless you're a priest, in which case you are at it. And they do go at it pretty significantly. Um, once she does become a vampire, they don't seem that... Like, the, the sex doesn't, doesn't stop. They don't have sex again, do they? Uh, they're kind of close, but it's, they're, not, they're not fucking. She has other pleasures now. Yeah. She has other ways to express her own, her life and her control and her own power. She's getting off in other respects. <laughs> and their dynamic has changed. You know, she doesn't need to... She doesn't need to seek him for her pleasure or at least to keep up that illusion. Whatever she's doing, it is ambiguous in that aspect. But also, you know, they found other ways to kind of entertain themselves, which is chasing each other over rooftops and kind of smashing each other to walk. And he drops her from the roof, which is hilarious. It's like once she become, <laughs> it's like once she becomes his uh, physical equal, the sexual control element is left behind. Yeah, she doesn't need to go in for money. Ding. <laughs> she doesn't need his sexual validation. And that's interesting that because I feel like that's the tool that she's had in her arsenal really only one for a long time but it's not one that she could necessarily use with with her husband because frankly he seems pretty happy with his left hand and even then I think the left hand is dissatisfied don't worry he'll start cheating with his right soon enough <laughs> his mum will get on it uh... <laughs> sorry <laughs> 
And yes, this is the first movie made in a, a South Korean cinema with a full frontal male nudity scene. You don't see that much, to be honest. You don't see full frontal male nudity much in film in general, even in non-South Korean Films. Yeah, but by the time the guy had made, by the time he'd made this film, Park Chan Wook had already had man eating octopus. He was fine, you know. This was nothing for him. Uh, I'm just thinking certain areas would probably be happier with the octopus than the, the full frontal male nudity, you know. <laughs> Good night, everybody. I do love that that's one of his recurring themes. You know, why not? I think that we could talk more, since we have talked about the faith aspect, I think it would be interesting to talk about the kind of cult that springs up around him once he emerges as this kind of miracle figure. Because these are people that camp outside a monastery where, in the hospital where he lives. Basically from the moment he comes back to, to Korea and they you know when he's um, when he's visiting ch sick children in a hospital um, uh, Lady Ra is the one that comes banging on the window she climbs through the garden to get to him he's doing magic tricks for sick little children and she's like no come come with me and it's interesting that they, they sort of take ownership of him in that manner you know, there, there, there is a bit of a Monty Python's Life of Brian about it. There is a scene where he sees them outside where he is staying and he kind of just leaps over them and they're just, they're like, oh, okay. But they're so enraptured by him that he can't do wrong until he has to, you know, physically go out of his way to do something that disgusts them. And I have a problem with that thing being him pretending to rape a woman, but, you know. It's kind of glossed over. It's just something that he quickly does. Like he doesn't actually rape her, he just sort of goes into a woman's tent and then goes through the motions of trying to before she starts screaming and then he runs off. Yeah, it's just like, how do I make it look like it? And I'm like, you've still violated her, guy. It's still sexual assault. You know, you're naked and on top of her and groping her, it's still, still sexual assault. Just because you didn't physically penetrate her doesn't mean you didn't do anything to hurt her. Exactly. But then, it, then again, he's just so far gone. It's like, yep, this is the solution. And I'm like, geez, and I'm glad you die now. But that is something that destroys his kind of quote purity. You know, he is the, the, the light of God shines on this man. He is such a miracle. He is the one in 500. He can do anything, but he is, you know, he is not human. And actually, he isn't human by this point in time, but not in the way that they think. But this kind of shows that actually he is human. He's a monster as much as any man can be. So that aspect, it, I, I get it, but it is also just, oh, we're doing this again. Yeah, couldn't he just run through the, um... The, the, the tenth city just, I don't know even well, even if he just ran through it naked and shouting random things like Snape kills Dumbledore or just something Just run through, uh, like punishing a knife or something, like he already has a knife Or just walk through covered in blood saying I killed a man He could walk through cutting out his own guts and just leaving them everywhere Cause he'll be fine from that and they'll probably think, oh god, he's not a he's not a saint, he's a demon. Dan, sure you'll traumatise a whole bunch of people. Or he could just go and pee on all the tents. <laughs> of course you went there. Well, I'm just thinking, okay, what's the least bloody version that he could do? He could pee on the tents, I suppose. He's a saint. Saints don't pee. They certainly don't pee on our tents. I mean, he could have just waited until the, the sword came back and started vomiting over all of them. Yeah, I'm not cured. 
it is interesting they see him without the sores but they also see him with the sores like it is just sort of accepted as part of his lore that these things come and go it's like half-hearted saint jeez Okay, so you're pretty. Sh I'm pretty sure you've obviously figured out our opinion on this movie and whether it should be watched. The answer is hell's yeah. This is easily one of the favorite things that we've um, viewed or read or anything like that for the blood sucking feminists. And it's yes, easily one of the favorite ones I've done. Go out and watch it. I'm going to go out and watch The Handmaiden, Stoker again, and oh boy, this is just. This sort of nails everything that I really, really liked. Watch it alone. Don't watch it with anyone else just because the awkward scenes are going to be awkward. And you don't want anyone... I mean, I would have that advice in general for Park chan -Woo. Just watch it alone. <laughs> yeah, and make sure nobody can walk in either. That's the thing you got to remember. Uh, if you liked uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone with Night... If you liked A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, I think you'd really enjoy this one. There's a lot of the the long silences, the lingering shots, that sort of... It's got a similar sort of feel to it. Like, there's a bigger story... There are bigger stories and other stories beyond the vampirism. Yeah, I mean, I would highly recommend it. I mean, I like Park Chan-wook in general, but certainly this is such a fascinating kind of trapeze act of tones and genres and ideas and he manages to balance it so successfully it is a film where you're kind of horrified by the blood one moment and then you're laughing very hard at the next and then you're kind of intrigued and then slightly repulsed and but always gripped i mean this thing moves along really a really good pace for a film that's over two hours long yeah it's it is long like i saw i started playing i'm like oh god i'm gonna be here forever and then I was just like, like a couple of minutes in, and bam! I was, I was stuck. Very happy, even with that two-hour sort of length. So if you're looking for something to take up a good evening, this will definitely do it. It is mostly in Korean subtitled, so you will have to pay attention and read. But honestly, I think you guys can do it. And, and given how incredibly blindingly white the vampire genre is, this is a refreshing change of pace. And if you are looking for a sort of a, a two-part series to watch, sort of a, you know, we'll do a double feature, watch it with The Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Well, that does feel like a good fit. Yeah. I think that they'd make a good match. You could always swap out uh, Girl Walks Home Alone at night for Stoker but if you wanted to keep to actual vampire films and not a vampire films without vampires, go with Thirst and A Girl Walks Home Alone at night I, This is easily one of the best things that we've done on this show so far Oh easily Like just in so many facets Like I have, I have no complaints about it except make sure you're watching this alone and be prepared for some puking. Not as fast as we were expecting, so. Yeah, I'm like, you read that review at the end of last month's episode, and I'm like, where, where is all the pus? I came here yeah, for no pus. pus. Sorry, there are sores, but I wouldn't say they were puffy. I mean, we're getting into no. semantics now, but it's there's a like... lot of blood. <laughs> yeah. So that's it for us on Thirst this month. Next month we'll be doing Daybreakers, the Australian-American science fiction vampire film by Michael and Peter Spierig. Uh It's an Australian film starring a lot of Americans and a couple of New Zealanders, most notably our favourite wine producer and pig owner, Sam Neill, but also Jay Lagaya, who you probably know as uh, Captain Typho in the Star Wars prequel films. Or if you're here, you probably know him from Water Rats, Street Legal, and Home and Away. We hope you have a very happy holidays. Go out and watch as many vampire films as you can. Please include Thirst. Enjoy your summer, your winter, or a season that is somehow neither. 
because it's summer here, winter for you up in the very north, and all the best for a, hopefully a very vampiric 2018. We'll be back next month, for the first month of the year, with Daybreakers! And hopefully some bottles of two paddocks. Uh, in the meantime, we're on our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com. You can email us at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That's fangmail with a G because puns, 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 puns. We're on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem. We're also on our own Twitters as Cislavova and uh, Kaylee Ann. Not spelt the way you think, but you probably already know that by now. Uh, we've also got a Facebook page. We'll probably be posting around a few other places, talking about vampires and stuff. Anything else you'd like to add before we good, bid goodbye to 2017? Uh, yeah, leave us some reviews on iTunes. That would be nice. Because we should plug that more and we don't. But yeah, we would like some reviews. Yeah, we should. That can be our 2018 resolution. Get an actual review. Anyway, that's us for this episode and 2017. We'll see you on the other side. And until then, don't let the vampires bite. <laughs>